The fear of man is no small issue. Growing up, I had friends whose parents threatened to disown them if they ended up following Jesus. I'm thinking of one friend whose family came from a Zoroastrian background, a religion that comes out of Iran, Persia. Another friend whose family came from a Buddhist background from Thailand. And it was very clear, if they chose to follow Jesus, they were going to be disowned. And for one of them, the Zoroastrian friend, the thought of becoming a follower of Jesus and therefore having his family cut him off and facing all of those pressures, it was just too much for him. And so he refused to own Jesus for himself. Reminds me of some of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who heard Jesus, were convinced by Jesus, even wanted to follow Jesus, but they refused. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible gives us comment about what was really going on in their hearts. It says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's in John 14. The reality is, if you know yourself well enough, we recognize that we all fear man to some degree. If you've ever been fearful of evangelizing, fearing what will happen, let's say if you share the gospel with your boss, your co-workers, fearing what your family will do to you if you become a Christian or if you evangelize, or even if you just struggle to fit in, you want so badly to to fit in, or you just wrestle to not stick out you know what it is like to fear man. Given our fear of man, Christians, how exactly are we to be faithful in the face of fear? I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. When Pastor Rocky preaches, we are in the Gospel of Mark. When I preach, we are in 1 Peter And we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. The suffering Christians that the Apostle Peter was writing to, they certainly had earthly reason to fear. The Christians were scattered throughout what is what we call modern-day Turkey. In the early 60s AD, they were grieved by various trials, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6. If you look over at 2.22, 220, just to get uh, a sort of 20,000-foot overview, we know that some were being beaten for their faith. You flip over to 4.4, we know that they were being slandered for living simple Christ-like lives. They were being slandered for living godly lives and facing, therefore, affliction. If we put ourselves in their experience, in their shoes, we can imagine the anxiety that we ourselves would have, I'm sure. The most godly of us, perhaps. The possible fear and panic as you have to live out your Christian life in front of your co-workers, your employers your so-called friends, your family who are against Christ. You can imagine too that sometimes you might be bold for Jesus in some circumstances and then in other circumstances you might shrink in fear not wanting to be the light of Jesus Christ. So again, the question is how can we be faithful even in the face of fear? How can we be faithful even in fear? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's go ahead and start from 8 to 22, and we can remain seated uh, for, as we begin from 8 and we go to 22. This is what the Word of the Lord says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for, the, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Again, if you're taking notes today, the main question is, how can we be faithful even in the face of fear? And we turn to our passage for answers. Answer number one, it is to remember that Christ is with us and He alone is Lord. Remember that Christ is with us and He alone is Lord. Verse 13, the beginning of our passage today, says there, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Of course, this rhetorical question comes immediately after the verses uh, 10 to 12. Look at verse 12, for example. And he talks about, the, the, he gives us these soul-encouraging truths that Yahweh, Lord over all, and God with us is on our side. It says there in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see that God is with us in two particular ways. He's with His people in two particular ways. He is there to deliver His people in compassion. You get this idea of compassion with his eyes being towards his people, his ears being open towards our cries and our laments. But he's also for his people. He's also for his people as he delivers his people in judgment against their enemies in his righteousness. And you see that clearly, right? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is an incredibly encouraging lifeline that we have. It means, Christian, in no matter the suffering that you may be going through and experiencing even right now for the faith, and even more broadly as we live in this fallen world, as Pastor Victor talked about, it means that no suffering of yours will ever slip God's view. 
It means that no cry of lament is ever out of earshot of your God. And as surely as God will vindicate his own name, so he will vindicate all those who bear his name. Now, if you're visiting with us, you're exploring Christianity, we're, we're encouraged that you're here. We're glad that you are here. We'd love to talk to you more about Christ and the hope that we have. But if you're visiting with us, these ideas of God's judgment of evildoers might seem a little strange to you. Especially, right, if somebody comes to church exploring Christianity thinking that, oh, you know, you Christians make up all this stuff of Jesus, this judgment stuff, this hell stuff, right? Because if we have made it up, then it's just so tribal. You, you, you guys versus you others, and your God that you created versus those who do evil. And if you're going to create a religion, you might think, why not create something else? Something a little bit more inclusive, let's say. Well, let me be clear. We as Christians do not believe that we created the Bible. We Christians believe, historic Christianity, in fact, believes that God is the foundation of everything and He created everything and He's the one who has given us His revelation that we might know Him personally. In the Bible, God tells us how we are to live, right? This passage is all about how we are to do good. Much of Peter's about how we are to do good. In the Bible, God tells us how we are to do good. That is the good that He Himself created us for. And whatever good the Christian does, it is to be done for this Jesus, for the one who created all things, the one through whom all things were made, and the one for whom all things were made. So when it says being zealous or eager for good, here what he's talking about is just living for our Creator, the one who created us, the one who even gave us these very good works to do. So we do not create morality. God is good. And so when God calls us to simply do good and not evil, He's simply calling us to walk in His ways and to walk after Him. And we also actually believe, as the Bible says, that God does, in fact, will, in fact, judge those who are evil according to His time. Now, it's here at this point that maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm, I want to explore, but this still fits a little bit uncomfortable with me. But think about it this way. Just as God will, in fact, judge evil, I'm guessing, actually, that you want such judgment to take place. I mean, don't you want a God who will, in fact, judge those who do wrong to you? Don't you want God to judge those who might mean harm to you and your family or your community, or maybe those that you think of as maybe innocent or the vulnerable. I mean, don't you want that? I'm guessing, right, in my experience, in your experience probably, we all want God to judge other people's wickedness. But where we have problems is we just don't want God to judge ours. Because in so doing, it means that we therefore have to own up to our own wickedness and our own evil, don't we? And at that point, right, all of us, I'm sure, sit a little uncomfortably because who wants to ever be judged by such a perfect and righteous God? The Bible does, though, say that God will judge sin and wickedness according to not our standards, but His very own perfect and righteous standards. It's His law that is over us. But get this here. 
we also think we deserve such judgment apart from Jesus. Like we Christians believe that we, apart from the grace of God, deserve such judgment. We do not think that we will escape this judgment because we are somehow inherently better, more worthy than our next door neighbors. It's not like we have somehow earned God's love for us because we've done such grand and wonderful good things or because we are so beautiful. Absolutely not. The Bible says that all have turned away from God, our Creator, and that all are opposed to God ever since the fall of man. And for such sin against God, the Creator, our Creator, we have earned for ourselves just judgment, as Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And so all people, apart from the grace of God, apart from Jesus, stand in absolute desperation and need of a Savior. We are in need of rescue. But God, being the good, marvelous, compassionate, merciful God that He is, reaches out to those who are His rebels. Can you believe that? And He offers them good news. God knew that there was nothing that we could do, and so He took care of it in His sovereignty. Out of love, He sends His eternal Son, Jesus, to take on flesh and live the perfect life that we should have. He fulfilled God's righteous laws where we could not. And He died the death that we should have on the cross as He bore the wrath that we deserved. And so you see here that God Himself created us. We rebelled against Him. But yet, He reaches out to us. He solves our problem. He sees our need and He meets it in Jesus Christ all according to His grace, His infinite grace, measureless grace, and His wonderful mercy. The Christian is one who recognizes one's absolute need of God's grace alone to save. The Christian is the one who knows that if they are going to change at all, we need Christ to do it for us. And the good now that we do and try and walk in, certainly not perfect, but the good that we do, just living Christ-like lives, trying to do good, not evil, trying to honor God, it's all according to God's power and glory through the Spirit. He's the one who gives us the good works to do. He's also the one that prepares us to do it, that we would honor Him. So we see that salvation alone, even the escaping of God's judgment, is all by the grace of God. Becoming a Christian is all by the grace of God. And friends, if you're visiting with us, this grace is for you. Forgiveness of sins is for you. Reconciliation with God the Father, your Creator, is for you. If you would turn from your sin and trust on Him. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And you will have no judgment hanging over you because Jesus Himself bears it for us. Again, He sees our need and He meets it in Jesus Christ. But the reality is, again, those who oppose Him will, in fact, face His judgment. Naturally so. God the King watches over His universe. God watches over His people. Of course He's going to be there for them. He's going to deliver them, and He's going to judge wickedness. So, church, as we look at this passage, right, you see here when we have this rhetorical question in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Zealous for what is good. The answer is no one. No one is there to harm us finally at the end if we are zealous for God. 
And the point here is not that the Christian will never suffer if you just do enough good or somehow that you could avoid suffering in this life if you just do good. That's not what he's saying there. The point is that even though some may oppose you, and let's broaden it up, even though you may suffer even right now for all sorts of things, those things, those people will never stop God from fulfilling his purposes to gather you to himself in the end to final salvation. That's why the Christian is still blessed even in the midst of suffering. Look there at verse 14. Look what it says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. This should remind us of Jesus' words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 6, 11 to 12. You see why you need not fear whether you're facing potential disownership by your parents if you claim Christ. You see why you need not fear if you have a health diagnosis that is looking really bad. It's because the Lord of all creation is on your side. Your sovereign creator and your security again, as I've mentioned in the past, is in proportion not to your strength, not to your ability to endure persecution because our flesh dies. It's not in your ability to endure and last or beat a cancer diagnosis. Your security is in proportion to the Lord's authority and power because of who He is and what He has done, you look in the middle of 14, because of who He is, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Because why would we need to? With a sovereign Lord on our side. But in your hearts, He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy, or sanctify the Lord in your hearts. That's the key to faithfulness, friends. This is the key here. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, You know when you fear, man, what's going on there? Let's say if you so desperately want the approval of other people. You desperately want your parents' praise, for example, or your friend's acceptance or whatever it is, or you want to be on the top so that everybody else might look up to you. You know what's going on there. You have enthroned other people on your heart. It's almost as if you have sanctified XYZ, your parents or whoever it is, on your heart and they are Lord. That's what's going on in the fear of man. Now here, he's just calling us to recognize who the Lord is with your whole being in your heart and set him apart. That's what holy means. Holy means set apart. And we are to honor God, the Lord, as him who is set apart because he is Lord and there is no other. So Christian, when you maybe might be tempted to be embarrassed about your holiness embarrassed about your Jesus, you recognize that the holiness that you stand for, that you maybe might be mocked for, is His holiness. And if He is grand in your heart, then what are you doing as you're walking before your friends and your family before the world? All you get to do, or the most magnificent thing you get to do, is magnify His holiness and the beauty of His character. So friends, you want to be faithful to Jesus, enthrone him in your heart as he alone is Lord and he is with you to fulfill his promises. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, turn over to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to see what it might look like to 
enthrone Jesus Christ in your hearts. Honor Him as Lord and trust in His promises. Hebrews chapter 13, these Christians were being persecuted as well. Chapter 10 talks about how they suffered affliction. They were being maligned and afflicted. Some were being jailed. Some were having their property plundered by probably by the authorities. And yet they persevered. And the author of the letter encourages them all the more in the face of all of that to continue persevering. And you look what it says there in 13.5. He tells them, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You might wonder, okay, well, where does that come from? Like all of a sudden he's talking about greed or what exactly is he saying? Well, you can imagine if all of your stuff was plundered, ransacked, taken, stolen, certainly you're going to rely on something. You might be tempted to rely on money to get you that security back, right? We, we see what's going on there. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. A lot of them had very little because it was stolen, right? So that's the, that's the exhortation. That's the command, right? Jesus commands us to do all sorts of things. But he gives us the reason. He says there, for he has said, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the sovereign Lord giving us a promise that is to then what? You look, look at the next verse. So we can confidently say, this is like the big therefore. Okay, given the sovereign Lord has promised a certain something, then we can walk in a certain way. Verse six, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He enthrones the Lord on his heart. He wants the Lord enthroned in all of our hearts. He wants us clinging to the promises of God because He is true and He is sovereign to keep them, faithful to keep them, and then He wants us going out and doing. We look at the world, we persevere in our faith while we say with confidence in the Lord, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, what happens if man is enthroned on your heart and God is just over there, not so powerful, not so reliable, not so worthy of your allegiance and your fear and your honor, your reverent worship. We look at his commands and we say, okay, keep your life free from the love of money, whatever. Are you crazy, God? They just took everything. I need security here on earth. How is it that this can be? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's ridiculous. And you look at the reason, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And maybe in your own doubt and your fear, you, may, you too may know what it's like to begin thinking, maybe he will leave me. Maybe he has forsaken me. Maybe he is not so faithful and loving. And then we look at the therefore, we're supposed to be confident in the Lord? Man can do everything for me. They can take everything from me, including my life. I need to fear. Therefore, I am my own helper. I will not fear when I am my own helper because man can do everything to me. You see how the unbelief creeps in right there and removes God from it being enthroned on your heart. The doubt removes any ability to cling to the faithfulness of our sovereign God to fulfill all of His promises according to His steadfast love and mercy, which we read about in Psalm 13. And then we go out in fear, fearing man, not trusting in God. 
trusting in ourselves as if we somehow are better shepherds than the Lord God Himself. In that unbelief, man is enthroned in our hearts. People that we might be fearful of, people are those we must run from or on the opposite side of the spectrum, ruin or even kill. Never mind people to be reached with the gospel. But here in our passage, we see that the Lord is the Lord over us and the Lord is with us who fulfills all of his promises according to his steadfast love. And so we can say, we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can men with guns do to me? What can the authorities do to me as they might wield the death penalty? Or what can sickness and death even do to me? With the Lord enthroned over our hearts, we go out, right, reaching the world because of love. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So right there you have this idea that when we enthrone the Lord in our hearts, we trust in His promises that He is faithful to save and to deliver, we go out in confidence preaching the gospel, always being ready to make a defense for the reason that for the hope of Jesus Christ that is in us. And we can think about Paul, for example, dragged before the Roman authorities, and he clearly heralds in Acts 22, Acts 24, the reason for the hope that is in him in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or we can think too maybe about our own casual conversations with people over coffee. I've shared in the past about how some of my non-Christian friends I grew up with, they certainly mocked me for my faith. One even, as I was talking to him about Jesus Christ, a fairly rough fellow, pulled out his gun, cocked it, put it right up to my head, and said, if you don't shut, and he cursed a whole bunch, if you don't shut up about Jesus, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. He had already been in prison for five years. His brother is in prison for life. My friends have certainly mocked me for my faith. But they, even him, has also been curious about my faith and actions. And so, friends, you realize that when these questions such as, so why don't you have sex before marriage? Why do you not get drunk anymore? Or even in the midst of suffering, what is your hope even though there's suffering and death in this world? And then one of them asked me, my friend growing up, can you tell me more about why you follow Jesus? You realize, friends, that when your friends ask you those questions or questions similar, the door is flung open for you to make a defense, to give reasons for the hope that is in us because of Christ, our resurrected Savior. This is the hope that kicks off the entire letter. If you look over to 1 Peter 1, 3, go ahead and turn over there. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the hope that drives Peter. It's the hope that He wants to drive all of us. And with Christ, again, enthroned in our hearts, not only do we go out for Christ, 
with reasons for the hope that is done us, we also go out in the character of Christ. Look at 15 and 16. That's why he's talking about going out with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience. Because we, as we interact, even with our persecutors, we can have a good conscience before the Lord as we represent Him rightly. And according to 2.12, we know that some will hear and watch us and come to profess Christ themselves on, at Christ's return. But Peter also knows that some will deny reject Jesus, and be put to shame, as it says in 3.16. But we are called to leave the results to God and simply be faithful to His calling as He is dispatching you, Christian, sending you out to minister hope to the world. And so as you enthrone Him on your hearts as Lord, that will help you. That will help fuel faithfulness even in fear And it is only when our hearts are ruled by Jesus and His glory that our fear of man can be dispelled. Now, you might object, but you don't understand the situation. These people, they could do so much to me. Or maybe you might realize that it's just so hard to remember these truths in the moment. Well, if you notice in our passage, the rest of our passage here, we go deeper into how Christ wielded his lordship for you. So if you're struggling, you're saying, okay, I I get what you're saying. I still fear man. Well, our passage leads us, shows us more clearly how Christ lords his wield, or sorry, how Christ's lordship has been wielded for you. This is answer number two. Answer number one was remember Christ is Lord, that he is with you. Answer number two is remember Christ's lordship wielded for you in 18 to 22. If you look there, 18 to 22 explain how Christ, again, wielded his power on the stage of world history. For me, this helps drive away the fear of man because clearly there's no one, absolutely no one more worthy of worship than Jesus Christ. There's no one more worthy to be enthroned on my heart than Jesus Christ. How does Jesus demonstrate his lordship for you? The answer is first. There's three. First, verse 18, Christ does away with sin. Christ does away with sin. You look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What a great reminder. When struggling with the fear of man, right, we might be tempted to focus on relationship. Horizontal relationships. We want to be good with those people over there. But here what this passage does is it reminds us that Jesus wielded his lordship so that the most important relationship would be made right. The most important relationship has already been secured for the Christian. That is your relationship with God. Our greatest need is not being good with people over there, standing with them according to their standards. Our greatest need is to stand before Him up there. But the reality is because of our sin, His face is against us, right? Apart from His grace. Because of sin, His face is against us apart from His grace. But what we made wrong, again, God Himself has made right. In Christ's love, Christ has brought us in. You look at the passage there. Why did He suffer? It was to atone for our sin. In joy and love, He took care of our sin by dying the death we should have. And for whom did He he suffer? For whom did he suffer? It says there, sinners, the righteous, for the unrighteous. We deserve judgment in our unrighteous, unrighteousness, yet the righteous one died for us. 
Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here's the grand purpose, that he might bring us to God. Christ restored our relationship with God, bringing reconciliation. Now, when you see the word there, it might, that he might bring us to God. Don't think that, oh, maybe it's not possible. It's just a possibility. No, don't think that. This might here in English speaks of the intended purpose for which he died. He died in order to bring you to God. So when fearing man, of course, we fear man's judgment. But in Christ, God has already done away with the judgment of God. He has won for you the only acceptance you need. That is reconciliation with God the Lord. Why live for man's approval? Your friend's approval. Your family's approval. As you bear maybe your family's last name. Why live for man's approval when you could hear from the Lord overall say to you by His grace, well done, good and faithful servant. Second thing, Christ conquered death. How did Christ wield His Lordship for you? This is all to help us enthrone Him in our hearts, right? Second, He conquered death. Christ conquered death. This is in verses verses 19 to 22. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This also fuels faithfulness despite fear, because again, where Christ goes, we go too. We, of course, know we will all physically die. We had a reminder of this yesterday. But by the power of the Spirit, Christian, you will be raised in victory. The victory Christ wins for Himself, we too will experience because He carries us with Him. How far are your friends going to carry you? How far are your parents going to carry you? Not very far. The victory Christ wins for Himself, we too experience because He carries us with Him out of the grave. Even in the face of the most evil and wicked, whether human beings or in the spiritual realm, with Christ as Lord of your hearts, your future is never threatened. Death will certainly knock at our door. You may be wrestling with this even right now. Maybe death is knocking at your door. But get this. The Lord has already stormed death's door. For you, Christian, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So with Christ, there is victory. Did you see that the resurrected Lord, did you see what happened when He was raised from the dead? He preached victory over the evil realm and put evil to shame. You guys know Allen Iverson? There's this one point in time where he's playing the Lakers, right? Sorry for you Lakers fan. And at one point in time, he steps back, shoots the three, and the Lakers defender just falls to the ground. And Allen Iverson steps over the defender on the ground, boasting as if, right? Saying that there's nothing you can do to stop me. Friends, the resurrection is Christ's grand step over, declaring to all the evil realm that there is nothing you can do to stop me and my plans in my sovereignty. And that power has been wielded for you, Christian. At Christ's resurrection, he went and preached victory 
over the spiritual realm. And he takes us all the way back to the days of Noah, right? Known for their wickedness. There were both angels and men who were corrupted. They had rebelled against the Lord. Verse 19, when Christ was raised in victory over death, it says, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey during the days of Noah. To explain here, these angels seem to be kept in prison until final judgment. We don't know where exactly this is. This could be a part of hell. Not really sure. We know that in 2 Peter, Peter uses similar language of disobedient angels in Noah's day being kept in chains and gloomy darkness. Also, in relation to this present, Revelation 20 describes God as imprisoning Satan for 1,000 years. And after that 1,000 years, as a Satan will be released from his prison before the great judgment. But here's the point. Is do you not see how God demonstrated, wielded his lordship for you? Why enthrone in your hearts other men when they still die? Sure, they might have power to kill the flesh but they don't even have power over their own. But with Christ, there is resurrection. And with Him, there is absolute victory. This victory has been secured. Christ wields His Lordship by suffering for sin. He did away with sin by being raised from the dead to new life. And then third, Christ ascends, proving that He is Lord over all. Third, Christ ascends, proving that He is Lord over all. You look there in 22. At this ascension, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. The point is clear. Our Lord is victorious, not just over the physical realm as He got up from the dead, but over all of the spiritual realm with angels, authorities, and powers. Those are spiritual realms that he's talking about. And those have been put under his feet. That means nobody, no power, no thing can threaten him. In fact, everything is under Christ even now as the Old Testament prophesied in Psalm 110. And as his people, we too will share in his glory. Now, thinking about your own situation here, I wonder if you feel like you are in the days of Noah. Maybe weary, and you want to give in to fear. Friends, this passage reminds us that the Lord is faithful, and He is with us. Just as He delivered Noah, so He will deliver you in Christ. Did you see that God's deliverance of Noah as he and his family got into the ark in the midst of the flood is a pattern of your deliverance in Jesus Christ? You look there at the verse at uh, verse 20. Turn back to 1 Peter. You look there at the end of 20. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he says there in 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism corresponds to the salvation, the deliverance that God gave Noah through those very waters. And the parallels are actually quite simple. You know, don't think one for one or what exactly the water and the boat and, you know, animals. Just think, just think generally God's deliverance of Noah through the waters and the Christian's deliverance in Jesus as represented through the baptismal waters. Noah was a righteous follower of God and he was separated from the wicked generation by water in the flood. And so you Christian as you are baptized 
You declare your separation from the world in the waters. This, this doesn't mean that baptism itself saves. Please do not think that baptism itself saves. The thief on the cross next to Christ was saved. As Jesus said, You'll, I'm going to see you today in paradise. He was not baptized. So we're not saying that baptism itself saves. That would go against the concept of grace that Peter has been talking about in this letter thus far and in the whole Bible. Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you think about what baptism is, you'll see what this means. Baptism, of course, is something that we do outwardly, something that gets done to us. The church baptizes. But it testifies to the inward reality that we have been united with Jesus in his death to sin. Just as he goes down into the grave, so the Christian through the waters goes underneath the waters, symbolizing our death to sin. Just as Christ came up from the dead, raised to new life, so the Christian in baptism pictures our resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. We are united to him in his death and then in his resurrection to new life. But baptism is also a sign, an appeal, a pledge to God of commitment. This is why many churches, pastors, pastors of those churches ask baptismal candidates certain questions right before they are baptized. Questions like, do you now profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins? Another question I used to ask people that I was going to baptize, do you promise by the grace of God to walk in Christ's likeness in a manner worthy of your calling that he has given you? And when the new believer, right, comes to be baptized, we go to God, as it says in verse 21, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's an appeal to God to, yes, based on your faithfulness and your promises, cleanse us, cleanse me from our sins. Cleanse me from my sins, just as you have promised in Jesus Christ. And we also promise to walk in newness of life. To Peter and other New Testament writers here, baptism and becoming a Christian are so closely related. They're so closely related to one another. The word baptism can stand in the place of the process of becoming a Christian. And we speak like this today. So, for example, we can speak about conversion from the individual's perspective. Like, hey, you became a Christian. Awesome. When did you repent of your sins and believe in Christ? That's from the individual's perspective. Repent and believe. We can also speak about conversion from the angle of the Spirit's work, God's sovereign work. So when were you born again? We can also speak about conversion from the angle of the church, as in, when were you baptized? And each of those terms, whether you say repent and believe, or born again, or baptized, they all refer to becoming a Christian, the process of becoming a Christian. But the point is that baptism pictures the Lord's deliverance of His people. And in baptism, we acknowledge and profess that Christ is Lord. We separate ourselves from the world in the waters of baptism. And let's be clear here. It all affirms not our doing, but Christ's lordship. It affirms Christ's lordship. That he was the one who suffered for sin. That he was the one who alone could die the death to sin that we could not. It affirms the Lordship of Christ that He alone has power over death as He was the one who got up from the dead being raised to new life. And it affirms His Lordship in that our Lord commands us to walk in holiness and in good works to Jesus Christ. And in baptism, we join God's people in the local church, which is a foreshadowing of the day when all of God's people will see and will be with 
our ascended Jesus Christ face to face who rules over all before his throne with everything in subjection to him. And so therefore, with Christ as Lord, we need not fear. There is great encouragement for us here. Just as God delivered his people in the past, so he will be faithful to deliver you. As Noah and his crew were in the minority, so we too may be in the minority. As Noah was known for righteousness and for preaching righteousness, the righteousness of God, so we too Christians are to be known for righteousness and for preaching the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just as Noah received safe passage amidst judgment, so Christians find safe passage in Jesus Christ as represented in the waters of baptism amidst coming judgment. And just as Noah found rescue and victory with the Lord, so you too, Christian, will find spiritual rescue and victory in the Lord. And so what Christ calls us to do now is simply to be faithful and to leave the results to Him. You look over at chapter 5, verse 10. And we trust in our God's, in Jesus Christ's lordship in the midst of suffering. And look what it says, offering us hope not in ourselves, but in God himself, 510. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ is Lord, and he is with us. With him over our hearts, the fear of man is dispelled. And we can persevere in faithfulness, walking in Christ's same footsteps, even as we endure trials. And given that is our Savior's way and our Savior's manner, let us, in verse 22, suffer for doing good, if that should be the Lord's will. Because in doing so, the world will see a little more of our Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you that our confidence is not in ourselves, is not in our strengths or in our intellect, in our number, but instead it is wrapped up entirely with who you are. Lord Jesus, we know that you are God, God of steadfast love and mercy and compassion. And we thank you that everything you promise, you fulfill. And nothing will threaten you and therefore what you have allotted for us. We thank you, God, just as Romans says, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. We pray, Lord, that we as Evergreen Church, that we would remember this and that even in the midst of fear, you would help us enthrone Jesus Christ in our hearts so that 
you would receive all of the glory and so that the world, maybe even those who might one day persecute us or those who might mock us, would come to know a little bit more about who you are and help us be always ready to offer a defense, to offer the reason that we have in Jesus Christ, the reason for hope that we have in our resurrected Lord and Savior. We pray that you would help us be gentle always, respectful, and that we would do all things out of the love of God. These things we pray for the fame of your great name. Amen.